0: Chapter Thirty-Two of Arrowsmith by Sinclair Lewis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. There may have been in the shadowy heart of Max Gottlieb a diabolic insensibility to divine pity, to suffering humankind. There may have been resentment of the doctors who considered his science of value only as it was handy to advertising their business of healing. There may have been the obscure and passionate and unscrupulous demand of genius for privacy. Certainly, he who had lived to study the methods of immunizing mankind against disease had little interest in actually using those methods. He was like a fabulous painter, so contemptuous of popular taste, that after a lifetime of creation, he should destroy everything he had done lest it be marred and mocked by the dull eyes of the crowd the letter from dr stokes was not his only intimation that plague was striding through saint hubert that tomorrow it might be leaping to barbados to the virgin islands to new york ross mcgurk was an emperor of the new era better served than any cloistered satrap of old his skippers looked in at a hundred ports his railroads penetrated jungles his correspondents whispered to him of the next election in Columbia, of the Cuban cane crop, of what Sir Robert Fairlam had said to Dr. R. E. Inchcape Jones on his bungalow porch. Ross McGurk, and after him Max Gottlieb, knew better than did the lotus-eaters of the ice-house how much plague there was in St. Hubert. Yet Gottlieb did not move, but pondered the unknown chemical structure of antibodies, interrupted by questions as to whether Pearl Robbins had enough pencils, whether it would be quite all right for Dr. Holabird to receive the lettish scientific mission this afternoon, so that Dr. Scholtis might attend the Anglican conference on the reservation of the host. He was assailed by inquirers, public health officials, one Dr. Almas Pickerbaugh, a congressman who was said to be popular in Washington, Gustav Sandalais, and a martin arrowsmith who could not whether because he was too big or too small quite attain gottlieb's concentrated indifference it was rumoured that arrowsmith of mcgurk had something which might eradicate plague letters demanded of gottlieb can you stand by with the stuff of salvation in your hands and watch thousands of these unfortunate people dying in saint hubert and what is more are you going to let the dreaded plague gain a foothold in the western hemisphere my dear man this is the time to come out of your scientific reverie and act then ross mcgurk over a comfortable steak, hinted not too diffidently that this was the opportunity for the institute to acquire world fame whether it was the compulsion of mcgurk or the demands of the public-spirited or whether gottlieb's own imagination aroused enough to visualize the far-off misery of the blacks in the cane-fields he summoned martin and remarked it comes to me that there is pneumonic plague in manchuria and bubonic in st hubert in the west indies if i could trust you martin to use the phage with only half your patience and keep the others as controls under normal hygienic conditions but without the phage, then you could make an absolute determination of its value, as complete as what we have of mosquito transmission of yellow fever. And then I would send you down to St. Hubert. What do you think? Martin swore by Jacques Loeb that he would observe test conditions. He would determine forever the value of Fage by the contrast between patients treated and untreated, and so, perhaps, end all plague forever. He would harden his heart and keep clear his eyes. We will get Sandelaus to go along, said Gottlieb. He will do the big boom boom and so bring us the credit in the newspapers, which I am now told a director must obtain. Sandelaus did not merely consent; he insisted. Martin had never seen a foreign country he could not think of canada where he had spent a vacation as hotel waiter as foreign to him he could not comprehend that he was really going to a place of palm trees and brown faces and languid christmas eves he was busy while sandalais was out ordering linen suits and seeking a proper new sun helmet making anti-plague fage on a large scale a hundred litres of it sealed in tiny ampules. He felt like the normal martin but conferences and powers were considering him there was a meeting of the board of trustees to advise martin and sandalais as to their methods for it the president of the university of wilmington gave up a promising interview with a millionaire alumnus ross mcgurk gave up a game of golf and one of the three university scientists arrived by aeroplane called in from the laboratory a rather young man in a wrinkled soft collar dizzy still with the details of erlenmeyer flasks infusorial earth and sterile filters martin was confronted by the men of measured merriment and found that he was no longer concealed in the invisibility of insignificance but regarded as a leader who was expected not only to produce miracles but to explain beforehand how important and mature and miraculous he was He was shy before the spectacled gravity of the five trustees as they sat, like a supreme court, at the dais table in Bonanza Hall, Gottlieb a little removed, also trying to look grave and supreme. But Sondolaus rolled in, enthusiastic and tremendous, and suddenly Martin was not shy, nor was he respectful to his one-time master in public health. wanted to exterminate all the rodents in st hubert to enforce a quarantine to use yersin's serum and hofkine's prophylactic and to give martin's fage to everybody in st hubert all at once all with everybody martin protested for the moment it might have been gottlieb speaking he knew he flung at them that humanitarian feeling would make it impossible to use the poor devils of sufferers as mere objects of experiment but he must have at least a few real test cases and he was damned even before the trustees he was damned if he would have his experiment so mucked up by multiple treatment that they could never tell whether the cures were due to yersin or Halfkine or fage or none of them the trustees adopted his plan after all while they desired to save humanity wasn't it better to have it saved by a mcgurk representative than by a yerson or Halfkine or the Outlander outlandish Sandileus? it was agreed that if martin could find in st hubert a district which was comparatively untouched by the plague he should there endeavour to have test cases one half injected with fage one half untreated In the badly afflicted districts, he might give the foge to everyone, and if the disease slackened unusually, that would be a secondary proof. Whether the St. Hubert government, since they had not asked for aid, would give Martin power to experiment and Sondalaya's police authority, the trustees did not know. The Surgeon General, a chap named Inchcape Jones, had replied to their cables, No real epidemic, not need help but mcgurk promised that he would pull his numerous wires to have the mcgurk commission chairman martin arrowsmith b a m d welcomed by the authorities sondolaus still insisted that in this crisis mere experimentation was heartless yet he listened to martin's close reasoned fury with enthusiasm which this bull-necked eternal child had for anything which sounded new and preferably true he did not, like Almas Pickerbaugh, regard a difference of scientific opinion as an attack on his character. He talked of going on his own, independent of Martin and McGurk. But he was won back when the trustees murmured that though they really did wish the dear man wouldn't fool with Syra, they would provide him with apparatus to kill all the rats he wanted. Then Sondolaus was happy. "'And you watch me.' I am the Captain General of Rat Killers. I used to walk into a warehouse, and the rats say, There's that damn old Uncle Gustav. What's the use? And they turn up their toes and die. I am used as glad I have you people behind me, because I am broke. I went and bought some oil stock that don't look so good now, and I shall need a lot of hydrocyanic acid gas. Oh, those rats! You watch me! Now I go and telegraph. I can't keep a lecture engagement next week. Huh! Me to lecture to a women's college. Me, they can talk rat language and know seven beautiful, deadly kind of traps. Part two. Martin had never known greater peril than swimming a flood as a hospital intern. From waking to midnight, he was too busy making foge and receiving unsolicited advice from all the Institute staff to think of the dangers of a plague epidemic. But when he went to bed, when his brain was still revolving with plans, he pictured rather too well the chance of dying unpleasantly. When Leora received the idea that he was going off to a death-haunted isle, to a place of strange ways and trees and faces, a place probably where they spoke funny languages and didn't have movies or toothpaste she took the notion secretively away with her to look at it and examine it precisely as she often stole little foods from the table and hid them and meditatively ate them at odd hours of the night with the pleased expression of a bad child martin was glad that she did not add to his qualms by worrying then after three days she spoke i'm going with you you are not well i am it's not safe silly of course it is you can shoot your nice old fage into me and then i'll be absolutely all right oh i have a husband who cures things i have i'm going to blow in a lot of money for thin dresses though i bet saint hubert isn't any hotter than dakota can be in august listen lee darling listen I do think the Fage will immunize against the plague. You bet I'll be mighty well injected with it myself. But I don't know. And even if it were practically perfect, there'd always be some people it wouldn't protect. You simply can't go, sweet. Now I'm terribly sleepy." Leora seized his lapels, as comic fierce as a boxing kitten. But her eyes were not comic, nor her wailing voice age-old wail of the soldiers' women. "'Sandy, don't you know I haven't any life outside of you? I might have had, but honestly, I'll be glad to let you absorb me. I'm a lazy, useless, ignorant scut, except as maybe I can keep you comfortable. If you were off there, and I didn't know you were all right, or if you died, and somebody else cared for your body that I've loved so, haven't I loved it, dear? I'd go mad.' i mean it can't you see i mean it i'd go mad it's just i'm you and i got to be with you and i will help you make your media and everything you know how often i've helped you oh i'm not much good at mcgurk with all your awful complicated jiggers but i did help you at nautilus i did help you didn't i and maybe in st hubert her voice was the voice of women in midnight terror maybe you won't find anybody that can help you even my little bit and i'll cook and everything darling don't make it harder for me going to be hard enough in any case damn you sandy arrowsmith don't you dare use those old stuck-up expressions that husbands have been drooling out to wives forever and ever i'm not a wife any more and you're a husband you're a rotten husband you neglect me absolutely the only time you know what i've gone on is when some doggone button slips and how they can pull off when a person has gone over em and sewed em all on again is simply beyond me and then you bawl me out but i don't care i'd rather have you than any decent husband besides i'm going gottlieb opposed it sandalias roared about it martin worried about it but Leora went and, his only act of craftiness as director of the institute, Gottlieb made her secretary and technical assistant to the McGurk Plague and Bacteriophage Commission to the Lesser Antilles, and blandly gave her a salary. Part three. The day before the commission sailed, Martin insisted that Sondolaus take his first injection of phage. He refused no i will not touch it till you get converted to humanity martin and give it to everybody in saint hubert and you will wait till you see them suffering by the thousand you have not seen such a thing then you will forget science and try to save everybody you shall not inject me till you will inject all my negro friends down there too that afternoon gottlieb called martin in he spoke with hesitation "'You're off for Blackwater to-morrow.' "'Yes, sir.' "'Hm. You may be gone some time. "'I—Martin, you are my oldest friend in New York, "'you and the good Miriam. "'Tell me, at first you and Terry, taught I should not take up the directorship. "'Don't you now Tink I was wise?' "'Martin stared, then hastily he lied "'and said that which was comforting and expected. "'I am glad you tink so.' You have known so long what I have tried to do. I have faults, but I t'ink I begin to see a real scientific note coming into the Institute at last, after the popularity chasing of Tubbs and Hollibird. I wonder how I can discharge Hollibird, that pants-presser of science, if only he did not know Capitola so well. Socially, they call it. But anyway there are those that said max gottlieb could not do the child job of running an institution huh buying notebooks hiring women that sweep floors oh no the floors are swept by women hired by the superintendent of the building nishvar but anyway i did not make a rage when terry and you doubted I am a great fellow for allowing every one his opinion. But it pleases me. I am very fond of you two boys, the only real sons I have." Gottlieb laid his withered hand on Martin's arm. "'It pleases me that you see now I am beginning to make a real scientific institute. Though I have enemies, Martin, you would tink I was joking if I told you the plotting against me.' "'Even Yeo. I thought he was my friend. I thought he was a real biologist, but just to-day he comes to me and says he cannot get enough sea urchins for his experiments, as if I could make sea urchins out of thin air. He said I keep him short of all materials, me, that have always stood for... I do not care what they pay scientists, but always I have stood against that fool Silva and all of them, all of my enemies. You do not know how many enemies I have, Martin they do not dare show their faces they smile to me but they whisper i will show hollibird always he plot against me and try to win over pearl robins but she is a good girl she knows what i am doing but he looked perplexed he peered at martin as though he did not quite recognize him and begged martin i grow old not in years it is a lie i am over seventy but i have my worries do you mind if i give you advice as i have done so often so many years though you are not a schoolboy now in queen city no at winnemac it was you are a man and you are a genuine worker But be sure you do not let anything not even your own good kind heart spoil your experiment at st hubert i do not make funniness about humanitarianism as i used to sometimes now i tink the vulgar and contentious human race may yet have as much grace and good taste as the cats but if this is to be there must be knowledge so many men martin are kind and neighbourly so few have added to knowledge you have the chance you may be the man who ends all plague and maybe old max gottlieb will have helped too hein maybe you must not be just a good doctor at st hubert You must pity, oh, so much the generation after generation yet to come that you can refuse to let yourself indulge in pity for the men you will see dying. Dying. It will be peace. Let nothing, neither beautiful pity nor fear of your own death, keep you from making this plague experiment complete. And as my friend, if you do this, something will yet have come out of my directorship. BUT IF ONE FINE THING COULD COME TO JUSTIFY ME... WHEN MARTIN CAME SORROWING INTO HIS LABORATORY, HE FOUND TERRY WICKETT WAITING. SAY, SLIM, TERRY BLURTED, JUST WANTED TO BUTT IN AND SUGGEST, NOW FOR SAINT GOTTLIEB'S SAKE, KEEP YOUR Faj NOTES COMPLETE AND UP TO DATE, AND KEEP em IN INK. TERRY, IT LOOKS TO ME AS IF YOU THOUGHT I HAD A FINE CHANCE OF NOT COMING BACK WITH THE NOTES MYSELF aw what's biting you said terry feebly part four the epidemic in st hubert must have increased for on the day before the mcgurk commission sailed dr Inchcape jones declared that the island was quarantined people might come in but no one could leave he did this despite the fretting of the governor sir robert fairlam and the protests of the hotel keepers who fed on tourists the ex-rat-catchers who drove the same kellett the red-leg who sold them tickets and all the other representatives of sound business in st hubert part five. besides his ampoules of Fage and his luer syringes for injection martin made personal preparations for the tropics he bought in seventeen minutes a palm beach suit two new shirts and as st hubert was a british possession and as he had heard that all britishers carry canes a stick which the shopkeeper guaranteed to be as good as genuine malacca part six they started martin and leora and gustav sandalais on a winter morning on the six thousand ton steamer st bourion of the m'gurk line which carried machinery and flour and codfish and motors to the lesser Antilles, and brought back molasses, cocoa, avocados, Trinidad asphalt. A score of winter tourists made the round trip, but only a score, and there was little handkerchief-waving. The McGurk Line pier was in South Brooklyn, in a district of brown anonymous houses. The sky was colorless above dirty snow sondelius seemed well content as they drove upon a wharf littered with hides and boxes and disconsolate steerage passengers he peered out of their crammed taxicab and announced that the bow of the saint bourion all they could see of it reminded him of the spanish steamer he had taken to the cape verde isles but to martin and leora who had read of the drama of departure of stewards darting with masses of flowers dukes and divorces being interviewed and bands playing the star-spangled banner the saint bourion was unromantic and its fairy-like casualness was discouraging only terry came to see them off bringing a box of candy for leora martin had never ridden a craft larger than a motor launch he stared up at the black wall of the steamer's side as they mounted the gangplank he was conscious that he was cutting himself off from the safe familiar land and he was embarrassed by the indifference of more experienced looking passengers staring down from the rail aboard it seemed to him that the forward deck looked like the backyard of an old iron dealer that the saint bourian leaned too much to one side and that even in the dock she swayed undesirably the whistle snorted contemptuously the hawsers were cast off terry stood on the pier till the steamer with martin and leora and Sandelaus above him their stomachs pressed against the rail had slid past him then he abruptly clumped away martin realized that he was off for the perilous sea and the perilous plague that there was no possibility of leaving the ship till they should reach some distant island this narrow deck with its tarry lines between planks was his only home also in the breeze across the wide harbour he was beastly cold and in general god help him as the saint bourion was warped out into the river as martin was suggesting to his commission how about going downstairs and seeing if we can raise a drink there was the sound of a panicky taxicab on the pier the sight of a lean tall figure running but so feebly so shakily and they realized that it was max gottlieb peering for them tentatively raising his thin arm in greeting not finding them in the line at the rail and turning sadly away part seven as representatives of ross mcgurk and his various works evil and benevolent they had the two suites de luxe on the boat deck martin was cold off snow-blown sandy hook sick off cape hatteras and tired and relaxed between with him leora was cold and in a ladylike manner she was sick but she was not at all tired she insisted on conveying information to him from the west indian guide-book which she had earnestly bought sandalais was conspicuously all over the ship he had tea with the captain scouse with the forecastle and intellectual conferences with the negro missionary in the steerage he was to be heard Always he was to be heard, singing on the promenade deck, defending Bolshevism against the boatswain, arguing oil-burning with the first officer, and explaining to the bar steward how to make a gin sling. He held a party for the children in the steerage, and he borrowed from the first officer a volume of navigation to study between parties. He gave flavor to the ordinary cautious voyage of the St. Bourion, but he made a mistake. He was courteous to Miss Gwilliam. He tried to cheer her on a seemingly lonely adventure. Miss Gwilliam came from one of the best families in her section of New Jersey. Her father was a lawyer and a churchwarden. Her grandfather had been a solid farmer. That she had not married, at thirty-three, was due entirely to the preference of modern young men for jazz-dancing hussies. And she was not only a young lady of delicate reservations, but also a singer in fact she was going to the west indies to preserve the wonders of primitive art for reverent posterity in the native ballads she would collect and sing to a delighted public if only she learned how to sing she studied gustav sandalais he was a silly person not in the least like the gentlemanly insurance agents and office managers she was accustomed to meet at the country club and what was worse he did not ask her opinions on art and good form. His stories about generals and that sort of people could be discounted as lies, for did he not associate with grimy engineers? He needed some of her gentle but merry chiding. When they stood together at the rail, and he chanted in his ludicrous up-and-down Swedish sing-song that it was a fine evening, she remarked, "'Well, Mr. Roughneck, have you been up to something smart again today or have you been giving somebody else a chance to talk for once she was placidly astonished when he clumped away with none of the obedient reverence which any example of cultured american womanhood has a right to expect from all males even foreigners came to martin lamenting slim if i may call you so like terry i think you and your gottlieb are right there is no use saving fools. It's a great mistake to be natural. One should always be a stuffed shirt, like old Tubbs. Then one would have respect, even from artistic New Jersey spinsters. How strange is conceit, that I, who have been cursed and beaten by so many great ones, who was once let out to be shot in a Turkish prison, should never have been annoyed by them as by this smug wench. Ah, smugness, that is the enemy. Apparently, he recovered from Miss William. He was seen arguing with the ship's doctor about sutures and negro skulls, and he invented a game of deck cricket. But one evening, when he sat reading in the social hall, stooped over, wearing betraying spectacles, and his mouth puckered, Martin walked past the window, and incredulously saw that Sandelaus was growing old. Part Eight. As he sat by Leora in a deck chair, Martin studied her, really looking at her pale profile, after years when she had been a matter of course. He pondered on her as he pondered on Fage. He weightily decided that he had neglected her, and weightily he started right in to be a good husband. Now I have a chance to be human, Lee. I realize how lonely you must have been in New York. But I haven't. "'Don't be foolish. Of course you've been lonely. Well, when we get back, I'll take a little time off every day, and we'll... we'll have walks and go to the movies and everything. And I'll send you flowers every morning. Isn't it a relief to just sit here? But I do begin to think and realize how I've probably neglected. Tell me, honey, has it been too terribly dull?' "'Hunka, really?' "'No, but tell me.' "'There's nothing to tell.' now hang it leora here when i do have the first chance in eleven thousand years to think about you and i come right out frankly and admit how slack i've been and planning to send you flowers you look here sandy arrowsmith quit bullying me you want the luxury of harrowing yourself by thinking what a poor bawling wretched storybook wife i am you're working up to become perfectly miserable if you can't enjoy being miserable it would be terrible when we got back to new york if you did get on the job and devoted yourself to showing me a good time you'd go at it like a bull i'd have to be so dratted grateful for the flowers every day the days you didn't forget and the way you'd sling me off to the movies when i wanted to stay home and snooze well by thunder of all the no please you're dear and good but you're so bossy that I've always got to be whatever you want, even if it's lonely. But maybe I'm lazy. I'd rather just snoop around than have to work at being well-dressed and popular and all those jobs. I fuss over the flat, hang it, wish I'd had the kitchen repainted while we we're away. It's a nice little kitchen. And I make-believe read my French books, and go out for a walk, and look in the windows, and eat an ice-cream soda, and the day slides by. Sandy, I do love you awful much. If I could, I'd be as ill-treated as the Dickens, so you could enjoy it. But I'm no good at educated lies, only at easy little ones like the one I told you last week. I said I hadn't eaten any candy, and didn't have a stomach ache, and I'd eaten half a pound, and I was sick as a pup. Gosh, I'm a good wife I am." they rolled from grey seas to purple and silver by dusk they stood at the rail and he felt the spaciousness of the sea of life always he had lived in his imagination as he had blundered through crowds an inconspicuous young husband trotting out to buy cold roast beef for dinner his brain-pan had been wide as the domed sky he had not seen the streets but microorganisms large as jungle monsters miles of flasks cloudy with bacteria himself giving orders to his garcon max gottlieb awesomely congratulating him always his dreams had clung about his work now no less passionately he awoke to the ship the mysterious sea the presence of leora and he cried to her in the warm tropic winter dusk sweet this is only the first of our big hikes pretty soon if i'm successful in st hubert i'll begin to count in science and we'll go abroad to your france and england and italy and everywhere can we do you think oh sandy going places part nine he never knew it but for an hour in their cabin half lighted from the lamps in their sitting-room beyond she watched him sleeping he was not handsome he was grotesque as a puppy napping on a hot afternoon his hair was ruffled his face was deep in the crumpled pillow he had encircled with both his arms she looked at him smiling with the stretched corners of her lips like tiny flung arrows i do love him so when he's frowsy don't you see sandy i was wise to come you're so worn out it might get you and nobody but me could nurse you nobody knows all your cranky ways about how you hate prunes and everything night and day i'll nurse you the least whisper and i'll be awake and if you need ice bags and stuff and i'll have ice too if i have to sneak into some millionaire's house and steal it out of his highballs, my dear she lifted the electric fan so that it played more upon him and on soft toes she crept into their stiff sitting-room it did not contain much save a round table a few chairs and a sybaritic glass and mahogany wall cabinet whose purpose was never discovered it's so sort of ah pinched i guess maybe i ought to fix it up somehow but she had no talent for the composing of chairs and pictures which bring humanness into a dead room never in her life had she spent three minutes in arranging flowers she looked doubtful she smiled and turned out the light and slipped in to him she lay on the coverlet of her berth in the tropic languidness a slight figure in a frivolous nightgown she thought i like a small bedroom because sandy is nearer and i don't get so scared by things what a dratted bully the man is some day i'm going to up and say to him you go to the devil i will so darling We will hike off to France together, just you and I, won't we? She was asleep, smiling, so thin a little figure. End of chapter 32